Welcome to ESG Out Loud. I'm Emil Halle. And I'm Paul Curstio. For this episode, we have a very special guest, Nell Minow, who is Vice Chair at Value Edge Advisors. She has a lot of insight on corporate governance issues and shareholder engagement, and she even has a few movie recommendations for us. And that sounds fantastic. But before we get to Nell Minow, Emil, uh, let's talk about some of the themes for the year ahead. You just wrote about what we might expect to see this year at a high level in proxy voting, uh, the energy transition and regulation. What could you tell us about that? So last year was a record for the number of shareholder resolutions that showed up on proxy ballots. And all indications are that that's not going to change too much this year. We saw a record number of those last year after the SEC came down with a stance that said it would not look too kindly on public companies in case they were to remove shareholder resolutions from proxy ballots. So consequently, there were a lot of votes around issues on climate, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and numerous other issues. So we're going to continue to see those again this year with companies like banks and insurance companies among those that are going to be facing resolutions over climate risk, energy transition plans, and other topics. Um, Another issue that's going to come up, lobbying and political spending. Um, We're going to see some of that. And there's obviously more detail in the story that's up on ESG Clarity. So please check that out if you want to know more. But on that, I think that one thing that's worth highlighting is that there's going to be more of a focus on access to reproductive health care. And that's given a Supreme Court's decision last year to overturn Roe v. Wade. On the energy transition, there's speculation that the energy sector is going to, again, outperform the broader market. But there is also a lot of potential for cleaner energy investments, especially with last year's Inflation Reduction Act. And uh, just to summarize some things on regulation, I think it's going to be interesting to see how asset managers change the packaging or marketing of products that they want to be perceived as being ESG. So last year, we saw enforcement activity, some some pretty high level stuff against uh, GSAM and BNY Mellon. And that's all part of an ongoing sweep examination effort by the SEC. Um, But in addition to that, the SEC has forthcoming rules around product names and marketing that won't actually take effect until, I think, 2024. Um, but you know, with all of those things in mind, it'll be interesting to see if there are going to be more kind of, quote unquote, ESG funds that come to the market or if providers are going to pull back on that uh, a little bit. And of course, um, you know, one of the big themes from last year was the anti-ESG push. And we're all going to be watching to see uh, what happens on that front particularly as we are no longer in an election year. I, I agree. I, I think that that's something, at least stateside, that's worth watching is in a GOP-controlled house. What, if any, pushback there might be this year uh, with their initiatives to kind of roll back ESG uh, in, in, in any way and how successful that might be in getting any farther than the house. Yeah, and, and if they're not tripping all over themselves and actually able to agree on anything and, and push any initiatives forward, of course. Well, agree on anything. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Let's jump right in uh, with your terrific interview with Nell Minow. I'm really excited about our guest this week, who for many of our listeners will hardly need an introduction. Essentially, Nell Minow is an authority on corporate governance. She is currently vice chair of Value Edge Advisors, a firm that helps institutional investors engage with their portfolio companies. She co-founded GMI Ratings and its predecessor firm, The Corporate Library. 
She was principal of investment firm Lens and was president of Institutional Shareholder Services. On top of all that, she was a lawyer at the EPA, OMB, and the Justice Department. And of course, many will recognize her as the movie mom from her extensive <laughs> experience in writing about film. Nell, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about what Value Edge Advisors does and what your role is there? Well, I think the best way to think about it is uh, to go back over the companies you just mentioned, because I've been with the same partners all the way through. So I started with Bob Monks in 1986 uh, and co-founded ISS. And then we spun off Lens and then we spun off from Lens, the corporate library. So each one, each time we sold a company, we sort of kept the part that we liked the best. And when we sold uh, the corporate library, which as you said, had become GMI ratings to MSCI, um, we kept a little piece of it for ourselves. And that's what Value Edge Advisors is. So I've, for me, it's really been just one continuous project all the way through, um, keeping the fun parts and selling the parts that were already established and not as exciting. What got you interested in corporate governance? You, you've had you have so much experience in this area. I'm just I'm curious about um, what what has kept your interest in that. Well, corporate governance really didn't exist uh, as a field when I got into it. Um, I had met Bob Monks when we were both working on the same project. He was working for then Vice President George H. W. Bush, and I was working at the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the Executive Office of the President. And um, we're working uh, on the same project. We really hit it off. We really liked each other a lot. I was pregnant with my second child, thinking about what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to work part-time. And he said, I'm starting a new company. We really couldn't afford you full-time anyway. You can work part-time. And we're going to advise large institutional investors on corporate governance issues. And of that sentence, I recognized the words advise and issues. And that was about it. Um, even though I was a lawyer and I'd been in the government for eight years, I had never heard of corporate governance. And he explained to me the rise of large institutional investors of pension funds and index funds, mutual funds, was colliding with uh, the abuses of the takeover era of the 1980s, that all of a sudden there were issues that were actually crucial for investors to look at. And there were investors big enough and smart enough to understand and respond to them. So I said to myself, this is perfect. Uh, we'll be on the side of the good guys. We'll write some op-eds and file some amicus briefs. Nobody will ever hire us. And I can work part-time forever. <laughs> And I like Bob. I like Bob a lot. I think he's great. So I did that. And I did work part-time forever. I worked part-time for 18 years. Uh, but it turned out that Bob, totally a visionary as always, uh, was just ahead of the game and was at that time when I joined ISS, the then brand new ISS with no clients, Bob was helping institutional investors file the first ever corporate governance related shareholder proposals and the first ever to get more than uh, seven or eight percent of the vote. And um, so we were really off to the races just because of, of Bob's vision. And I, you know, as I look back on my career now, I've done so many different things. I've worked for so many different enterprises, but they all have one thing in common, which I never thought about at the time, which is that 
they're really all just systems analysis. Whether you're talking about a movie, whether you're talking about a corporation, whether you're talking about federal regulatory programs, which is what I worked at uh, in the government, uh, everybody wants it to work. And when it doesn't work, it's really interesting to think about why. And that's a perfect job for kind of an opinionated oldest child, which is what I am. So it, it seems like today, even though corporate governance, um, there's a lot more focus on that. It seems like in the ESG world, and maybe this is just true in the media, but it, it kind of takes a backseat to environmental and social issues, even while it, it seems indisputable that good corporate governance is essential for helping maximize investors' returns and helping companies run as they should. Do you think that you know, even today, governance gets enough attention, particularly from investors and asset managers? No, I don't. You know, I've always been mystified by the fact that, say, for example, CEO pay, the pay performance connection is not an essential part of traditional securities analysis. It's a better predictor of litigation risk, liability risk, and investment risk than many of the other standard factors that securities analysts look at. Uh, and for some reason, they ignore it. Um, so I think that uh, on the one hand, there's been enormous improvement in governance, thanks to uh, better understanding, thanks to international pressure, thanks to Dodd-Frank and Sarbanes-Oxley. But the most remarkably shocking case you can think of uh, where a, a two-second ESG analysis with a focus on the G would have alerted everybody to the problems is FTX, which didn't have a board of directors or a CFO. And if you did, as I said, a two-second uh, analysis of their governance, uh, you would short the stock immediately or refuse to do business with them. And uh, so I think we haven't fully understood how important governance is. But let me just give you an example. When when I first joined Bob at ISS, O.J. Simpson was on five boards. And troublingly, he was one of a two-person audit committee. And you never heard of the other guy. But trust me, neither one of them knew anything about accounting or auditing. And today, I think we would consider that a red flag. So I think we've made some progress. People do look at uh, governance indicators. Um, so I, I actually think that governance is better understood in many ways than the S and the E. So when you go back to something that she mentioned um, at the beginning of that statement, which was about uh, compensation, how effective have say on pay resolutions been? It's been effective on some things. It's been ineffective on others. It certainly has been ineffective when we talk about the total amount. But it's been effective in kind of a dogs that don't bark uh, category, meaning that it's not it's not so much effective if we look at how many no votes there are. It's been effective in preventing no votes when companies understand that there are certain things that shareholders simply won't accept. So I think it has been effective in some ways. Uh, you know, we've we've certainly don't have the kind of bananas perquisites that we've seen in the past where uh, CEOs were putting their household domestic employees on the company payroll and uh, and some of that. But uh, it has not really strengthened the pay performance link. And certainly it has been completely ineffective in terms of the size of the pay. 
And as we're getting into this current proxy season, um, what are some corporate governance issues that you're paying attention to? Well, for me, if I had to just pick one issue to focus on, uh, it would be political contributions, because that really crosses all areas of ESG. Uh, we see tremendous amount of dark money going into fighting climate change initiatives at every level. I'm not just talking about environmental laws, but I've spent much of my time over the last three years fighting for terrible, terrible rulemakings uh, that were shoved through in the last days of the Trump administration with the help of tremendous amounts of money coming from the fossil fuel and other corporate industries. We fought them. We got some of the worst parts taken out. They were still all pushed through, but they were not pushed through at my alma mater, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, where everybody looks to climate change concerns, but two at the Securities and Exchange Commission, two at the Labor Department, uh, all really focused on the investor side. And you can't, you know, climate change is an issue where it really takes a village. Everybody has to be involved. Consumers have to be involved. Employees have to be involved. And certainly investors have to be involved. And if the SEC and the Labor Department make it much, 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 much harder for large institutional investors who, as I said, they're smart and they're big for them to get the information they need for them to be able to respond as they should in a purely market-based way. Nobody is suggesting any kind of trade-off of environmental goals against investment goals here, but in a purely uh, financial way. Um, that just is a, is a subsidy for the fossil fuel industry, which is the last thing we need if we want to address climate change. And the fact that the fossil fuel industry spends so much money on lobbying in that category, you can imagine how much they're spending on the more direct, you know, Interior Department, Environmental Protection Agency, international kinds of, uh, of uh, initiatives. So what you really want is complete transparency of every dollar spent on campaign contributions and on lobbying, uh, because that's where shareholders really want to see that they're getting the kind of return on their money that they're looking for. So if I just had to pick one issue, both as a prediction of where the focus is going to be and as a wish for where the focus should be, I think that would be it. And, and of course, that's complicated, um, you know, for investment companies, for example, because of their uh, association, their industry groups, that um, even if these companies themselves don't make contributions or have public stances one way or the other, the the groups that they're funding and thus are making those those political contributions go against that. Is that something that's harder to get a handle on? They've got their interests too. And it is very complicated. I mean, the example that I always use is that there's a tax incentive for manufacturing, whether you think that's a good idea or not, that exists. Okay. So Starbucks spent $60,000 on a lobbyist who had just left work on Capitol Hill to get grinding coffee beans classified as manufacturing. So they got a multi-million dollar tax break for expenditure, $60,000 as a shareholder. You should be happy about that, I suppose. But as a human being and a citizen, uh, maybe not. 
So we just need a lot more transparency there. If in fact companies are spending money on things that benefit shareholders, they should be willing to tell the shareholders what that is. Another example is that in January of 2021, uh, after the attack on Capitol Hill, a lot of companies announced that they would not support elected officials who'd refused to certify the election. They started reneging on that less than two months later in March. And uh, most of them are now, of course, giving money to everybody. And of course, giving money through intermediaries like the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, ALEC. And that's just distorting our political process, distorting our democracy beyond recognition. We really need to see it much more clearly. Investing itself is something that over the past year has become quite political in nature. And of course, the anti-ESG push is a big part of that. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how asset managers and big investors should respond to these things. Like, is it is it wrong for them take, to take a stance on, on political issues? Should they avoid that altogether? And what what's most concerning to you? about the current political environment from an ESG perspective. Trotsky said, um, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And Michael Jordan said, so two great experts here, Michael Jordan said, Republicans buy sneakers too. So you've got to find a space somewhere in between those two. You know, the headphones that I'm wearing right now are new. Um, my old headphones broke. So I went on Amazon to buy some headphones and I looked at all the reviews. And these headphones say that they are made in a climate neutral way. So if even headphones are selling themselves as being climate neutral, then they're not doing that because it gives them a warm feeling at night. They're doing that because they think consumers like me care. I said, oh, it's climate neutral. I'll get that one. And uh, the number of um, of electric cars being pr purchased in Europe is now something like triple what it was just a few years ago. So you're, it's not political to respond to the consumers in that way. Just that in the 70s, uh, all of a sudden, everything in the grocery store was labeled organic until the government finally stepped in and said, there's an actual dictionary definition there, and we're going to make you apply that. You can't just call everything organic. And, you know, I, I, I really want to emphasize that I went to the University of Chicago. I'm as free market as it can get. What is more free market than for me to spend my entire career uh, advising and promoting the people capitalism is named after, the providers of capital? Uh, I really want the free market to work. And I don't want anybody, either corporate executives or investors, to say, well, we're willing to make a trade-off here. You know, the return may be less on the green bonds, but we think it's going to be great. I don't think that's necessary. I think the market will solve these problems much more efficiently with the help of government, with the help of everybody else. But the, the, the market is very, very well positioned. And I'll tell you why. The two things that corporate governance and the environment have in common is they're borderless. You know, we could pass the Nell Minow ideal environmental laws tomorrow. We would still be breathing the air from China next week. And so it's something we have to look at on a global basis. And the same thing is true with corporate governance. We could pass the Nell Minow perfect corporate governance laws here in the United States 
and companies doing business here located here would still have their official domicile changed to the Cayman Islands or the Isle of Man or Bermuda. Um, and uh, there we would be. So um, it really, both of them have to be looked at uh, on a global basis, but I would never advocate making any kind of an explicit trade-off uh, if you're acting as a fiduciary. That is not your call to make. Um, and I think that uh, that in, in my fights on these four rules that I mentioned at the SEC and the Labor Department, I constantly responded to the allegations from the fake front groups created by the um, by the corporations, the ones that have names like Citizens for a Better Tomorrow, uh, by saying you're claiming that investors are making these trade-offs. You have failed to come up with a single example. Now, keep in mind that any transaction involving a share of stock has got, by definition, two different ideas about the value of that share of stock. The seller thinks it's not as valuable. The buyer thinks it is valuable. So you're going to always have different ideas about making investment decisions, but they're all going to be financially based. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine any of the big asset managers doing things because they just feel like it's the right thing to do. They're in the business of making money for their clients. Um, and one other thing, um, as long as we're on the topic of, of politics, it, it, it seems like this is in, in part, at least a little due to pressure from some Republicans, but we've seen some of those big asset managers come out with ways for uh, fund shareholders to have a say in proxy votes. Um, it's kind of unclear how that's ultimately going to work and how many people will be interested in that. It's pretty clear how many people are going to be interested in it. You know how we know? By the number of individual shareholders who respond on proxies, which is very, very low. I do it. Why? Because it's a sunk cost for me. I'm already very familiar with all those issues. I don't have to spend a lot of time on it. But for most people, most first of all, most people don't hold individual stocks, but even those who do, the response rate is very, very low. My view on pass-through voting is it should be a hundred percent aligned with pass-through stock selection. In other words, if you're not invested enough in the decision about the buy and sell, you should not you you are not invested enough in the decision on uh, how to vote on somebody's uh, pay plan or on shareholder proposals. So I think that's that's absolutely ridiculous. And also I want to respond to the issue of the politicization. You know, what we're seeing here is the same absolute baloney that uh, that got everybody all fired up about uh, critical race theory, which of course has never been taught below the graduate school level. And for some reason, now everybody seems to think it's being taught to kindergartners. It's baloney. And the same thing is true with ESG. There are these claims that it's political. It's not political. Now, when the 19 Republican attorneys general, state attorneys general, wrote a letter to Larry Fink with their concerns about BlackRock, I said to myself, Larry Fink is, because that's what he should do, he's going to write back a, a very mollifying, you know, lawyered over type letter. And I wish uh, he would write something stronger. Now, he did write a very good letter. I liked his letter a lot. But before that, I wrote my version of what I would like to have him say. I said I was like, the Luther, the anger translator for Obama that was on the old Key and Peel show. And I'm going to write the letter. And it began by saying, you guys have a heck of a lot of chutzpah to 
be elected officials accusing a financial institution of being too political. Um, again, not a single example of a buy, sell, hold, or vote that was made on any other but purely financial reasons. I am curious about how much scheme there is going. I know that there's a lot of money behind it, or, or, or I've, that's what I understand. But now that we're not in an election year, I am a little curious about where that kind of politicization of investing, anti-ESG push, whatever you want to call it, uh, how much life that has left in it. I mean, you saw you saw that when uh, Ron DeSantis, who is clearly uh, looking at the White House, uh, made his acceptance speech on election night, he explicitly said, Florida is where woke goes to die. It is a huge, huge political issue that the Republican Party is very excited about because their funders are very excited about it. And I, again, in that letter that I drafted for Larry Spank, uh, I, I said, I said, uh, you know, I don't know why you guys signed this letter. I don't think you even read it. It was clearly written by the funders to the Republican State Attorneys General Association who are of course the fossil fuel industry. And by the way, let me also mention this. When you you know, this is this is where it really gets ridiculous. When the uh Louisiana and Kentucky uh elected officials said they were going to stop doing dis- business with uh, BlackRock because they're too, you know, touchy-feely, crunchy, you know, uh, ESG oriented. This is what they said. They they didn't say we're trying to protect the retirement fund security for our state employees, which of course is their job. They said, we have a lot of fossil fuel industry in this state, and that's why we're making the decision. In other words, they're asking for a subsidy. There's nothing less free market than a subsidy. They're asking for a subsidy. Similarly, one of the trade associations of the fossil fuel industry and one of their comments on these rulemakings that I'm talking about wrote and said, we believe in ESG. We like ESG a lot, but we think we understand it better than shareholders do. Of course, that's ridiculous. And they said, and if shareholders have too much oversight over this, no one will invest in us. Well, that's like saying, uh, being a buggy whip manufacturer as cars are coming in and saying, if we don't get a subsidy, we can't keep making buggy whips. Well, you don't want to make buggy whips. We don't need them anymore. And, and you know, these are the people who are making political decisions and interfering. Meanwhile, one of those, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Louisiana, they switched from BlackRock to a firm that is much more ESG oriented. They're, in fact, the firm that bought my ESG fund. Uh, so you, you, on their homepage, they talk about it. So clearly they did no due diligence whatsoever. And in Texas, where they stopped doing business with the Wall Street firms because they said they were too ESG oriented, um, Wharton estimates that it cost them $500 million in less than a year uh, in additional fees. So that's political. That's not financial. And I want I want to get back to, uh, before I forget, to uh, some things about the upcoming proxy season. We've seen the number of shareholder resolutions really skyrocket over the past year. And this has forced some companies to do things like set emissions targets or move toward reporting gender and racial equity data. Um, but I'm curious if you see any drawbacks in having so many issues showing up on proxy ballots. No, 
Uh, first of all, even with that number increasing, it still affects only a tiny fraction of the public companies, of the thousands of public companies in this country. And generally, the number of companies receiving shareholder proposals is uh, less than 1%. So, no, I don't think that's a problem. Second, uh, many of those proposals, as you know, are negotiated out. Uh, it's a foot in the door to start a conversation. And when the company says, all right, we'll meet you halfway, we'll meet you three quarters of the way, generally speaking, those proposals get withdrawn. Third, the proposals are, as you know, non-binding. Even a 100% vote does not force the company to do anything. Therefore, I don't see any downside whatsoever. Okay. And, and kind of on that note as well, um, I'm curious about how effective you think shareholder engagement has been in kind of nudging or, or really moving businesses to um, reduce their carbon footprints. Is that is that like a sound strategy, especially for these really carbon intensive businesses, or should there be a, a kind of complete divestment from fossil fuels? I'm fundamentally opposed to divestment, again, because it is by definition, not made on strictly financial grounds. Otherwise, it's just investment. If you think it's not going to be a good investment, you sell it. That's fine. But so, I, you know, and by definition, in divestment, you're selling the stock to somebody who doesn't care. And the happiest day of the CEO's life is when a shareholder who has been engaging on these issues sells the stock to somebody who never will. So uh, I, I'm 100% opposed to divestment. Um, in terms of engagement, I think engagement can be very effective uh, because that's how markets work. The same way that if, share, if, if, if consumers all of a sudden decide that they don't like uh, salty snacks, then they're going to start making less salty snacks. And that is, that's, that's the beauty of uh, the free market. So we've gone over quite a bit, but are there any other ESG issues that you think people should be paying attention to right now? It all comes down to the board of directors, 100% the board of directors. I'm so interested in what uh, engine number one did at ExxonMobil. I think we'll see more focus on individual directors going forward, more focus on making sure that there are climate change experts on all of the relevant boards, more focus on making sure that boards have all the information uh, in the boardroom that they need on you know, important issues like cybersecurity. Um, there are always going to be new issues you know, there are always going to be unexpected uh, new directions when the uh, when Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, it was very, very interesting to see the work that Jeff Sonnenfeld was doing at Yale on tracking the way that corporations were responding to that. There will be more issues coming up in those categories going forward that we can't even anticipate now, just as we didn't anticipate 15 years ago, the importance of uh, Black Lives Matter and Me Too. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a constantly evolving process. And again, that is the way that markets work. Uh, I, I hope there will be more focus on on political contributions and lobbying and on um, uh, uh, and on the quality of the board of directors and transparency of the board of directors. So finally, I, I feel like it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't ask you a movie related question. I'm wondering if you can give us any recommendations for films that might have some importance for the ESG world. 
Well, the movie that I always recommend is the best movie ever about corporate governance is called The Solid Gold Cadillac from 1954. It begins with a shareholder meeting. And if you just added five or six zeros onto all the numbers, you would see that nothing has changed. A shareholder with just 10 shares raises her hand and asks why the CEO is being paid the outrageous amount. I think it's $150,000 a year. And it's about what happens then. It is a delightful romantic comedy. And, and as you will see, as the movie goes on, every issue of corporate governance that comes up is still a vital one today, especially about conglomerates and the military industrial complex. And uh, it's a love story as well. So I love that one. And then another movie that I think is a great movie that nobody watches uh, about corporate governance is called Owning Mahoney. It's based on the true story of the biggest bank embezzlement in the history of Canada. And if you look at, and it's got Philip Seymour Hoffman and Minnie Driver, and John Hurt. And if you look at that movie, you will see how effectively it portrays how everybody in the movie, the embezzler, the people who are tracking him, the uh, casino uh, where he lost every penny that he embezzled. They're all estimating risk all the time. The movie opens with the bank loan committee turning down one of their biggest depositors for a loan. Very bad decision on their part because uh, her account then was embezzled. And again, that's a they're making a risk assessment. They made a poor risk assessment, but that's what it was. And it sort of goes on from there. So that's a really good one. And then The Big Short is, is a great one too. It's always a, a terrific movie to understand. Uh, how these people think. Oh, great. Thank you for those recommendations. I appreciate you indulging me on that. Nell Minow, thank you so much for being with us. It's been really great talking with you. I enjoyed it very much. We'd like to thank our fabulous guest, Nell Minow, for a fascinating interview. And we'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining the podcast today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest ESG news, please visit us at ESGClarity.com and subscribe to get newsletters sent right to your inbox. Join us again soon for more insight and analysis on the next episode of ESG Out Loud US.